From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Barbara Slavin, Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council South Asia Center and Washington Correspondent for Al Monitor. Joining me on the show this week are Tom DeFrank, Contributing Editor to National Journal, and Hillary Krieger, Enterprise Editor for CNN Politics Digital. And here are the news. After 54 years, the United States and Cuba will reestablish formal diplomatic relations later this month. Negotiations continue with Iran, another long-term U.S. adversary, as diplomats close in on an agreement to restrict Iran's nuclear program for at least a decade in return for relief from economic sanctions. Greece hovered on the brink of expulsion from the Eurozone after failing to meet a $1.5 billion euro payment to the International Monetary Fund. And in Egypt, massive new terrorist attacks showed how hard it is for the government of President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi to achieve stability while monopolizing all political power. Plenty to talk about. Yes, Tom? Cuba. You and I are old enough, well, almost old enough maybe to remember when the U.S. and Cuba had good relations before Fidel Castro came down from the mountains and took power. But it's been an awfully long time since then. Well, I remember Barbara probably when I was about... 11 or 12 years old, having to write something for for my elementary school class on Cuban President Fulgencio Batista. Oh, my God. How long ago is that? (laughs) I'm sure 80% of Americans living today don't even know who that is. Yeah. So dominant has been the Castro regime since he came down from Oriente Province, took over the country. This is monumental. It's not a surprise because six months ago, President Obama announced that he would begin the process of normalizing relations with Cuba. Now there's going to be uh, embassies. The old American embassy has basically just sat there, and now it's going to reopen. It will be interesting to see because I think it's going to be next to impossible to get an American ambassador to Cuba confirmed by a Senate that doesn't much like anything President Obama is doing except for trade, which they liked a lot. His argument in announcing the exchange of diplomats and the reopening of embassies is the same one he made several months ago. He said the policy has not worked. Right. Cuba democracy has not come to Cuba at the hard line, so we should try something else, and it remains to be seen whether this will work. Hillary, uh, I mean, probably the only knowledge you have of pre-Castro Cuba is from watching I Love Lucy reruns, right, with Desi Arnaz, <laughs> uh, which is probably the way I still <laughs> remember it. But there are interesting possibilities now that are opened up. Tom mentioned no ambassador, but there has been an interest section since 1977 in the old U.S. embassy premises in Havana. So it's almost sort of just a technicality, taking the current chargé d'affaires and just elevating this gentleman to ambassador. I think Tom's right that we won't get a new appointee there. But in other ways, this is quite significant, isn't it? It's definitely significant. First of all, in terms of the entire position of America in the, you know, in its own hemisphere, you know, most of the countries around Cuba have really objected to the United States policy, have had a lot of problems with it, both as, you know, on the sort of practicality of the economic embargo, but also just in terms of the U.S. projection of power 
power and they have wanted Obama or, you know, whoever's been in the White House to take a different line. And I think that that, you know, helps America standing with many of the countries that it would like to have better relationships with. It has some difficult relationships with many of the leftist governments throughout the Southern Hemisphere, and it creates some new openings there. The embargo is, you know, just internationally very unpopular. And so there's certainly a broader international context for what Obama is doing. And it has to do with the president himself and him sort of making good on some his campaign promises, what he said he stood for in terms of reaching out to America's adversaries, talking about diplomatic moves as a way to achieve results and to change America's standing in the world. And now that he's about to leave office, he doesn't face another election. He has some more latitude to make those moves. And I think to really try and shore up his legacy and to say when he leaves office that he's, you know, changed the way America's doing business. Tom, there's also the whole question of how you bring about change in countries like this. I was at an event a few days ago where the discussion was over private enterprise. Apparently, one of Obama's really early decisions, which was to allow much larger remittances from Cuban-Americans to Cubans, that actually has had a catalyzing effect on the private sector in Cuba. Now, something like 10 11% of the Cuban economy is represented by private enterprise, and that these businesses, these small businesses, have been almost entirely fueled by remittances from wealthier Cuban-Americans. So the idea that you can begin to change the nature of a regime through engagement, I think that's a very powerful motivating factor. Right. I think in Obama, probably onto something there. The real question is, and one that is fairly raised by critics of the policy is, what has this done for civil rights in Cuba over the last six months? The Washington Post, which normally would be expected, I think, to support this policy change, pointed out that in the last six months, arrests Mm -hmm. of dissidents have gone up, not down. And the Washington Post editorialized, it seems as though at the moment this looks like it's a one-way street, that it's good for Cuba, but it's not good for... Good for Cuba's regime, you mean. Good for Cuba's Castro regime, but it's not good for uh, human rights, civil rights. And so uh, we'll see. And the White House, of course, says uh, this is not a sprint, it's a marathon, and you'll see progress. We'll see. We will see. That's kind of an interesting segue, Hillary, into the question of another adversary that the U.S. has been negotiating with now for a while, and that's Iran. These nuclear negotiations do seem to be making progress, and there is an expectation that they're actually going to reach a conclusion in a few days. But critics of the whole process say Iran's human rights record has gotten much worse, and indeed, it's certainly not gotten any better. If you measure it in terms of executions of people, it's gotten worse, certainly. Iran's regional behavior has not uh, changed. It's still supporting the Assad regime. It's meddling in Yemen. It's meddling in Iraq and so on. And so there are those who say, well, we shouldn't even be talking to them about the nuclear issue because of this behavior. But the Obama administration has a different point of view. How do you see the negotiations in terms of the U.S. relationship with Iran, Iran's relationship with the world? Well, I think what the U.S. administration has said, there are a lot of concerns with Iran, but really the chief one from a United States national security perspective is its development of nuclear capabilities. The U.S. believes that Iran's trying to get a nuclear bomb, which would then intensify all of the bad behavior that Iran is doing because it would have this nuclear safeguard. And so they see dismantling the nuclear program as the number one imperative and something that will ultimately help the region, even if the human rights aspect isn't addressed directly. Time now for a short break. We'll be right back with more issues in the news. Here's a quick quiz. 
What do the letters L-T-A-T-O-M-L-A-W stand for? We know the answer, right? Listen to Akwe Thompson on Nightline Africa Weekends. Add to that 16 and 18 UTC on VOA, and we have a perfect score. That was easy. Welcome back to Issues in the News on VOA. I'm Barbara Slavin with Hillary Krieger and Tom DeFrank. Tom, the Iran nuclear negotiations are perhaps approaching their finale now, and there's a lot of noise around these negotiations on all sides. Uh, some elements in Iran don't seem terribly pleased, although the vast majority of the people do. In the U.S., the opinion polls show that most Americans support diplomacy, but you wouldn't know that from what a lot of folks are saying, especially on the Republican side. Well, the Republicans are very upset about this. They think it is appeasement, and they think it's a bad deal. They think that Iran is not going to live up to anything it agrees to if a deal has been made, and if a deal is made, But the White House is convinced that they are very close to a deal. And it's interesting to me that in addition to the U.S. Secretary of Energy being in the talks with Secretary of State Kerry, officials of the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, have showed up in Tehran. And so those are what would normally, in a political sense, would be called leading indicators. Uh, The White House is trying to control its enthusiasm, but I think beneath the radar... They feel that they're very, very close to a deal. But then I say that, and then you see yet more uh, saber-rattling from uh, the Ayatollah Khamenei, who says, we will never allow any officials onto our military bases, and the sanctions have to go into effect before an agreement. Sanctions really. Sanctions must be lifted before an agreement can be settled. Uh, The White House says they believe he's just posturing to the hard line in Iran. We will know within a week. Yeah. Hillary, some of the stickiest uh, issues left have to do with what IAEA will be able to see and do, whether they'll be able to clear up questions about the so-called possible military dimensions of the Iranian program in the past. It seems as though they're coming up with a formula whereby the inspectors and various investigators will be able to question certain people and go to certain sites. Another issue that's been a sticking point is what Iran will do with a lot of excess low-enriched uranium that it's amassed. It has to get down to 300 kilograms. Some hints of progress in, in the last few days? Well, I think you've seen, you know, definitely hints of progress in terms of people saying that they're making progress. There hasn't been, you know, a lot of really, you know, concrete signs that this is definitely what the solution will be. However, you have people in the room who are sitting in the talks in Vienna, and they're certainly going late through the night and saying that they think things, you know, are on track, but though there haven't been any big breakthroughs. But then you have this rhetoric that's coming at the same time. And I think it might be, as you know, some Obama officials are saying, just rhetoric out of Iran to appease the hardliners and that it doesn't really affect what's happening in the room. But it has the effect of creating a different political climate. Right. And, you know, part of what needs to happen, because after this deal is signed, it goes to Congress for a review period. And essentially, there's, you know, a sense of the American public and how they see this. And interestingly, though, Americans do support diplomacy. CNN, we just had a poll a couple of days ago, which showed a strong majority did not think that this deal would actually prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. (laughs) So Americans want to see diplomacy pursued, but they're very skeptical about the outcome. If you have these mixed messages, it's harming the overall environment. I think that there's the people on the ground want this to happen. And I think that they 
see a lot of what remains as a bit of a technical dance. There are formulas for we can say that there are sanctions that are going to be lifted, but then the actual phasing happens over time and, you know, what those exact mechanisms are. But I think there's still a question about at the end of the day, are people willing to take a step that when they go back to their home countries Mm -hmm. can be seen as making concessions, that can be seen as taking a real gamble going forward. And I think as the the deadline has been extended till Tuesday, the Congress has imposed a deadline on Thursday. These might be met, they might not be met. And so I think it's going to come down to really those last couple of days. The timing is interesting from a political sense, uh, Barbara, because if an agreement is not announced in the next handful of days, I guess by the time we're by next the at the, by the time we're next at these microphones, the <laughs> amount of time that any agreement has can be considered by Congress goes from 30 days to 60 days. And if a Republican-dominated Congress has 60 days to deal with this, there's going to be no end of of problems for the Obama administration. So time, at least in a political sense, is of the essence here. Yeah. Well, at the Atlantic Council, we've scheduled our event on the deal on July the 9th in the afternoon. So that's (laughs) That's optimistic. (laughs) No, I think that's just about when we'll we'll have it. So anyway. Well, I think there'll be some clarity, because if you don't have it, that's also a good reason to get together and talk about what's happening. Iran, as we know, one of the reasons they're at the table is because of economic sanctions. But there is a country that has even bigger economic problems, and that is Greece. They missed a deadline for making a payment of about $1.72 billion, about 1.5 billion euros, to the International Monetary Fund. They've closed the banks, except for pensioners who can go and get about $150 for a week. Uh, People can go to ATMs and withdraw a small amount of money every day. They're going to vote on what they think of the last plan that the European Union put forward for them to stay within the Eurozone and satisfy their creditors. A lot of uncertainty. A lot of uncertainty, and polls show that it's really deadlocked over which way people are going to go. There's also a lot of uncertainty over what people are actually voting for. There's the referendum that's being held is based on a plan for a bailout that would have also required very tough austerity measures. That bailout plan isn't even on the table anymore because it expired earlier this week. So even if it does pass, it's unclear um, in terms of like what that plan would, would look like. And it's certainly unclear what the consequences are because Greeks do reject this offer. A lot of people think that means that Greece is essentially going to be leaving the euro, potentially the European Union. But it's unclear. The way that the Greek prime minister is presenting this to the public is that it improves Greece's negotiating power. And that's not what's going to happen. Now, of course, the European officials are saying that that's the opposite. You're actually going to destroy any faith that European creditors have in mm-hmm. investing in Greece. So um, you shouldn't take that risk. But it's really unknown. And so I think one of the problems for voters is that they don't really know the actual details of what they're voting on. And they really don't know the ramifications of what's going to happen. And I think the overall problem now, regardless of which way this shapes out, is that there's just huge chance for chaos and instability. And that's going to only increase the bad economic situation, which makes it very hard to see a way out of this. Of course, Tom, chaos is a Greek word, as we know. And it's also the middle name of the Greek government. And it has been quite some time. But, I mean, Greece does not have a lot of uh, sympathy in, uh, within the rest of Europe. I came across a what I thought was a really monumental statistic. The International Monetary Fund said recently that four years ago it predicted that Athens would raise $55 billion by privatizing government properties through the end of 2015. They have collected $3.5 billion, just oh, a, a fraction of that. But I don't think there's a lot of credibility 
seen on the part of the Europeans, especially the Germans, the finance minister who has said you have to take your medicine. And it's interesting to me to see that prime ministers and leading officials of several other governments who have gone through the tough medicine, Spain, Ireland, have said, we did this, you can do it, and you shouldn't have an exception. So nobody's feeling real sorry for Greece. Time for another break. We'll be right back with Issues in the News. Do you lead a busy life? Not always able to catch your favorite VOA radio or TV program? If you are keen to stay in touch with world news and events, give VOA Podcasts a try. VOAnews.com. Visit our website at VOAnews.com to learn how you can become a subscriber to VOA Podcasts. And keep your life up to date. VOA News, your trusted source for news and information. Welcome back. I'm Barbara Slavin with Tom DeFrank of National Journal and Hillary Krieger with CNN Politics Digital. Uh, we're talking about Greece. You know, yes, the Europeans have uh, wanted Greece to accept a number of, of additional austerity measures and so on. But in the last five years, its GDP has gone down 25 percent. Youth unemployment is 50 percent, Hillary. There is an argument to be made that sort of German-style austerity is actually killing the opportunity for Greece to recover and that it maybe Greece should just leave the Eurozone and try to make it on its own. Well, I think there's definitely, you know, an argument about austerity. And I think, in fact, you can't look at the situation and not see the ways that austerity has probably contributed. Of course, there's a reason why the austerity was demanded because there was such, and, you know, by many counts continues to be such gross mismanagement of money. And, you know, the creditors needed, and things need to change in that economy. The question is how much pain can you inflict in a short amount of time and, and get any positive results? But the second part of that, therefore Greece should leave the euro, it's hard to see how that actually creates a better economic outcome for Greece, because you're talking about this economy with these terrible indicators. When Greece leaves the euro, that doesn't magically get better. In sure. fact, they then have to go to a different currency, which is you know, based essentially their own currency. If international creditors don't have much faith in Greece now, I think it's only going to increase the government can print as much money as it wants, but it's not necessarily going to have a lot of value. It's really a big question whether that actually is going to, at the end of the day, improve Greece's situation. And in fact, many people think it will just make it that much worse because they'll be now removed from this other possibility of getting life support. I mean, there still is an opportunity to work out post-referendum some new package. And that, again, gets to the issue of the instability and the unknown and, and how there don't seem to be any really good options. Yeah. Tom, does the United States have a dog in this fight? Our, our uh, stock market seems to have largely shrugged it off. Several days ago, there was a big drop of uh, over 300 points in the uh, U.S. stock market when it appeared that the negotiations were collapsing. But the market bounced back a little bit the next day. Economists are saying that there's really only about a 5% impact if this all falls through on the U.S. economy. But 5% is not a small number. And it's, I think this has become a psychological issue as well as an economic and political one. The market's abhor chaos. And at a time when the U.S. economy is clearly not great, but good and improving and has been for several years, you don't want instability like this. So there, there would be an impact, but most of the impact of a collapse in the negotiations is going to be felt in Europe. But there will be a global impact. And for the Greeks, 
to go down, in effect, is not going to be good for anybody, especially them. And yeah. I think there's also the fact the Obama administration has been very supportive of the EU and keeping people in the EU, having the EU as a strong bloc and as a strong sure. partner, wanting to see that economy thrive. You know, some said an ideological or certain philosophy about the way that Europe should look. That means that it's important to the United States that, you know, that Greece stay in this union. Yeah, we should point out the next deadline is July the 20th. That's when Greece owes over 3.5 billion euros to the European Central Banks. So there is a little bit of time here to try to patch all of this together. Now, speaking of chaos, Hillary, there's uh, another country that's been very important to the United States uh, historically, and that's Egypt. We had the replacement of a democratically elected president, Mohamed Morsi. A couple of years ago, uh, a new military strongman, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, came in, was elected president. And his his mantra is that Egypt is going to become a stable place because it's going to crush Islamic fundamentalism. And instead of stability, we've seen more and more violence. Right. There's kind of an irony because previously, you know, the regime of Hosni Mubarak had basically used the Muslim Brotherhood and the threat of Islamic extremism. Not that it didn't exist, but he used that as really a rallying cry to have an, a real authoritarian state and really played on that fear in order to stop democratic reforms. But now there's actually a very real concern that these forces pose a much deeper challenge. I don't think it's quite at the existential threat, but when you see what's happening in Sinai yep. and the way in which terror cells have been able to take advantage of very rocky and unfriendly climate and use the Bedouin tribes that live there that don't feel a lot of loyalty to the Egyptian state, bordering the neighborhood with Gaza, to really do a lot of destruction and really set up shop. Egypt's been battling that issue for years and hasn't come up with an answer. And so, you know, this is something that's, you know, it's causing obviously a lot of concern in Cairo. Interestingly, there are some signs that they're having a little bit of thawing with Hamas, the mm -hmm. group that runs Gaza, which has been not at all embraced by Sisi and the Egyptian authorities because Hamas is an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood. But they're both fearing that ISIS is so strong and so vicious that now they're going to have to cooperate a bit uh, to stave off that threat. It's not clear that that will actually achieve that effect, but that it does have some sign of showing that there's mm -hmm. what the Egyptian government, the lens is trying to go to in order to deal with this issue. Yeah, well, as you well know, the Israeli government is having indirect negotiations with Hamas on a long-term truce, so this perhaps makes it easier for the Egyptians to change their attitude. Tom, in addition to the problems in Sinai, there was a, a car bomb that was detonated by remote control. It killed Egypt's top prosecutor, Hisham Barakat one of the highest-ranking government officials to be killed since Anwar Sadat was assassinated in 1981. Barakat was responsible for prosecuting Mohamed Morsi and all these other Muslim Brotherhood leaders, many of whom have now been sentenced to death. And in the aftermath of that, Sisi threatened basically to stop the appeal process, accelerate the executions of these Muslim brothers. You think that's going to have a positive impact on no, no, stability not, in Egypt? Not at all. And I mean, uh, Sisi did this at the assassinated minister's funeral, I mean, to, yeah. to, to heighten the impact. Now, uh, former President Morsi has been sentenced to death, but he's got an appeals process. But if that's taken away, I mean, I, I think if CC goes down this route, there's going to be more chaos. What I found interesting about this also, Barbara, was the Egyptian army is a real army. Yeah. The Egyptian military is the strongest, except for Israel, of course, is the strongest military in the neighborhood. And they were taken by surprise. But I guess you could say the empire strikes back. But in the aftermath of these Sinai attacks, which nobody seemed to see coming, military has struck back very hard and probably has that 
situation under control, but the underlying political situation is really no better. And, yeah. and of course, when your most durable ally in the Arab world Egypt has got more turmoil, more chaos, and more internal divisions. It's not a welcome situation for the United States, to put it mildly. No, indeed. Any final thoughts on Egypt and uh, its relations with Israel, of course, are quite good, but I'm not sure that's enough to resolve this problem. Well, I think that, you know, one of the questions with Egypt has been where, you know, the U.S. comes down and people, you know, have been critical. Some of the same Washington Post editorial writers have been critical that the United States was too willing to see CC come into power in such an undemocratic fashion and really bring Egypt fully out of any sort of reform and cracking down on all sorts of human rights journalists as well as the you know Muslim Brotherhood figures. Now I think with the emergence of ISIS, there's <laughs> a real politic that takes over that you know U.S. has already fighting ISIS in various ways in in Iraq and Syria. And so this just intensifies that effort and that, I think, view of of Egypt. So, Well, on that gloomy note, that's all the time (laughs) we have. Joining us today were Tom DeFrank, contributing editor for National Journal, and Hilary Krieger, enterprise editor for CNN Politics Digital. This program was produced by Carol Castiel. Our engineer was Justin Thwaites. I'm Barbara Slavin, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and Washington correspondent for Al Monitor. Thanks for listening. Thank you.